Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So, Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football. I like football season and all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pelizzolo back here with Sam Monson. It is wild card weekend. Super wild super card weekend. Wild yeah, card sorry, weekend. I got it right. I got it. It's super wild card weekend. We'll go through all of the games. It was an amazing weekend, Sam. I enjoyed it. A lot of good football. First, got to remind you guys, though, all first-time depositors at Monkey Knife Fight to put at least $20 into their account while using the promo code PFF will receive a free PFF Edge annual subscription that's 365 days of access and $40 of value for just $20. And you get the opportunity to turn that 20 into even more money playing daily fantasy and prop games at one of the fastest growing fantasy sports sites in the country. It's Monkey Knife Fight. So go to Monkey Knife Fight, deposit your 20 bucks, use the promo code PFF, receive your free PFF Edge annual subscription. All right, Sam, let's get into all of the action. Today we're going through the six wildcard games. And then we're going to go through, you know, because we're getting into off-season mode mm-hmm. as well. We're going to review the offensive free agents. Last episode, we went through the entire free agent class. We'll get a little bit more specific on the offense at the end of the show today. But let's go through this weekend's games, starting with Saturday afternoon, Colts at the Bills. I enjoyed all six games, got to say, but this might have been the best game of the entire bunch. There was a lot at play here, Colts-Bills. What do you this think was take good. Us? I... I didn't think that the Colts had it in them to hang as tough as they did in this game against Buffalo, given the way the Bills were rolling into the offseason, looking like the best team in the NFL. Uh, Buffalo still looked pretty good, but the Colts really made it tough for them. And, you know, the difference between the two could have swung a lot if they hadn't shot themselves in the foot. You know, the the sequence just before halftime was huge for Buffalo and for Indianapolis kind of throwing away a, a promising position. Yeah, this this game had a lot of different things. Um, Josh Allen was incredible; he was awesome. Sign it. Great plays. Just let me sign have, the form. Let me analyze football. Sign the form. without you trying to throw no. pieces of paper in my face. Mm-mm. Josh Allen was incredible. 
played at an MVP caliber level. I thought, uh, you know, early on, the Colts defense did a really nice job. But before you know it, Allen's flipping the field with a big pass up the seam to Stephon Diggs. That connection is just really great. I My favorite throw, I know you were just re-watching some of the throws and the one rolling to his left on second and 15, that was a game changer. But just that, the, the touch pass to Diggs uh, for the touchdown, uh, that was huge too because the Colts had done a really nice job. The Colts were kind of getting a little conservative. It was late in the game. The Bills were up. And they were they were being patient. And my you know on Thursday I was talking about hey the Colts are going to play a lot of zone and Allen's going to be patient. And when they play a lot of too high, and that's when you generally have to just take the underneath stuff. All of a sudden the Colts got aggressive and said let's take a shot. They left Diggs singled up, runs right by T.J. Carey. Allen hits him in stride for the for the touchdown. It was just it was just it was good offense, right? You take what's there, and then when they give you a chance to make a big play, you make it. So quarterback wise, Allen was outstanding, and. Um, it was just a really good game. A lot of analytics decisions, too, that were, you know, discussed. Some good. Mm. Like most of them were good. Um, but the, pro- the process was good, but the results weren't. And that always brings for uh, interesting discussion in the Twitter sphere. Yeah, chiefly because I don't know why they hang an answers out to dry that much in terms of, like, there's a rules analyst in every game, right? Because you know that somewhere along the line there's going to be a crazy officiating decision, and rather than try and parse what they were thinking, you can just turn to a Gene Sterator or a John Parry and say, hey, <laughs> what the hell just happened? You know, what were they right. planning, right? But for analytics, you just expect the Charles Davis to be like, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, really. Like, why not have a guy in the booth or a guy in the truck or – somebody somewhere that understands what is happening with these decisions who can at least get in Charles Davis's ear or not just Charles Davis but anybody right because these guys very rarely have a great handle on this stuff and for the ones that aren't necessarily intuitive explain what the thinking is so that rather than be like I mean I understand some of the numbers but this one makes no sense to me Jim he can just he gets a guy in his ear to explain what the thought process is that it's just it's bad it's bad broadcasting the way it currently goes so some of that's already happening at least as far as percentages go we already work with networks and we at least um, there are certain broadcast teams that we work with and we kind of at least give them the percentages here's the go for it versus punt or kick or whatever but rarely is there anybody explaining why right it's just here are the here are the differences i think this has come up enough this year that by next year the networks have that person they're going to have a person they're going to have somebody explaining things and just saying and it's not just, oh, it's 53% if they go and 48 if they – but it really is the, the go for it down 14, going for two yeah. down 14 and the is thing, a pretty quick and easy explanation. Exactly. And I think they need that because the way it's currently being presented sometimes feeds into this, like, dinosaur reaction against, well, the analytics say you go for it. But clearly that's stupid because we know that, like, you know, it's not – some of these decisions are not necessarily intuitive and explaining why – the data says to go for it despite a in a counterintuitive situation is important because otherwise you're like well the analytics just say go for it and clearly that's stupid because look at this decision you're like yeah like that guy needs to have it explained to him why the numbers say go for it in that scenario and we've said this many times here too the the numbers it's not like it's a hundred percent right it's right? an edge it's an edge and we view it through it's it's a go no go i mean you have to make a binary decision right. go no go but you're using anything over 50% means go, right? It, 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 in simple terms. It doesn't mean 
that this is going to work 100% of the time. Well, you know it's yeah. not going to work. Sometimes it's going to fail, but the failure's also baked into the equation as well. And right? It doesn't even mean like you it, – it shouldn't be presented as a, well, that was the right decision. It's just this is why he did it as opposed to I don't understand what he's doing here. Here's what, here's what I find interesting. I was mentioning this to somebody on Twitter yesterday too. I would like to see how coaches – so there was a fourth and four yesterday that the Saints didn't go for it in, um, in Bears territory. And they probably should have. The previous play was an incomplete pass. Third and four, you throw an incompletion, so it's fourth and four. I want to know how much the previous play really dictates what they're going to do. Because right. we look at it from like a, in a vacuum, it's fourth and four, go, no, go. I think if it's like third and 15 and you pick up 11 to get to fourth and four, it's like, all right, we just picked up 11. Let's go for it. Yeah. It's but like, if you, but if it's like third and one and you lose three on a run it's like there's no way you're gonna go for it on fourth and four there but it's the same situation it's like in your brain if you're tossing a coin that's come up like tails five times in a row there's no way you're gonna put your money on yeah. tails even though it doesn't change anything it's still a you know it's still a coin flip literally and, and i think again the best coaches it's so like the, the colts game is a really good example right frank reich made i think what what the numbers would say pretty much the right decisions along the way and they the first three failed right so two of them were, were going for it on fourth down and giving up field goals. The third one was down 14. We always keep saying you go for two, right? And it just, it, it just increases your win probability because you have an opportunity to win with, like a, with a fail safe of, of being tied rather than pursuing the tie where it's still like a 50-50 proposition, essentially. And uh, in a 50-50 proposition as the underdog Colts is not good. So it's less than 50%. Right. If you just kick field, if you just kick the extra points. But the Colts essentially failed on two fourth down conversions. They're down 14. They go to, they fail at that. So they're down eight the next time they score a touchdown. But then they got that two point conversion. So it ended up reverting back. So it was one of those, he, I mean, he had to go for two that last time, but every good decision seemed to fail from an execution standpoint. But I think that's the whole point of playing the numbers. It, to me, it doesn't always feel comfortable, but it's the numbers. The more it plays out, the more it's going to be in your favor over time. It always The analogy that always makes sense to me is it's like poker, right? You can, get, you can lose to a bad beat on any given hand, but if you play the right odds, mathematically, you're going to win long term. That's how it works, right? The same, I think, is true with analytics. And if you just play the correct numbers – over the, a broad period of time, you're going to win. It doesn't mean that on any given decision, you won't get done by a bad beat or even that you won't go on a bad run, right? That you'll get a sequence of these decisions that go against you or the results that go against you. But it, it doesn't change that what you were doing was correct, theoretically. And here's the ironic thing in all this. The, the other side of the coin where the team, there's three punts that probably shouldn't have been which was uh, the Ravens game yesterday, Tennessee punts, uh, the Steelers last night, and there was, uh, what was the other, there was another questionable punts decision late in the game that ended up by, um, come up, it might have been Seattle. I, get, I, I screwed up. I remember three of them, and I couldn't remember <laughs> what the third one was. Cut that. We'll, we'll fix that in post. Yeah, right. Um, anyway, there was, there was some conservative coaching as well that ended up working the other way. To me, I look at the Colts game, and the fact that they lost by three to a team that was better than them, you know, being on the road, I think that was, that was impressive. And it took some of those aggressive decisions to get there. 
Um, Philip Rivers, you know, he balled out. He was making some some really good throws down the field. They did everything they could, Indy, to uh, to hang tough. But I keep coming back to the Bills just being a really good all around football team, and uh, they're going to move on, man, and host the Ravens. Yeah, and, and you look if Josh Allen plays at this level, they're a really really tough out for anybody. Um, people have been talking about them for a while as the team that could go toe-to-toe with Kansas City, that could potentially beat them. They're still in that bracket. They're, Josh Allen playing at an MVP caliber level puts them in every game. It's like it's any of those teams. When you get an Aaron Rodgers or a Russell Wilson or a Patrick Mahomes and they're at that level in that game, they're going to be extremely tough to, to beat because he can – make those plays basically by himself that negate everything else and that second and 15 you were talking about is a perfect example right unblocked blitzer off the edge josh allen just fakes him out you know it's a db as well it's not like the guy can't adjust and move and isn't athletic josh allen like fakes him out runs to his left fires a laser to stefan diggs on the sideline to pick up you know more than 15 on a second and 15 play like those are individual plays that you cannot legislate for if you're a defense like that worked right your defense on that play went the way it should have gone and Allen just beat you on his own it was a win on the chalkboard right I mean right you that's what I'm it saying up, you schemed it up the right way and a player just made a a better play I th- so I thought Buffalo's defense you know I thought they might get run over by Indy I thought they did a really good job bottling up uh Jonathan Taylor for the most part he had 3.7 per carry and uh, they did do a really nice job there up front as far as, you know, handling the Colts offensive line. Uh, Naheem Hines did break a couple runs in there too, but um, that was more later in the game when things opened up a little bit. So I, I thought Indy would do a better job running the ball. They did try to, to run the ball. As much as I'm giving Frank Reich credit I, credit, I thought early when they got into the red zone, Rivers makes this great pass down the field to get into the red zone, and they went run, run, screen to nowhere and kicked a field goal. So I thought from a play calling standpoint, there could have been a little bit more aggressiveness once they got into the uh, into the red zone. They just didn't, you know, the Bills red zone defense did a really nice job until the second half and, uh, you know, again, kept it kept it really close. We'll talk about the, pre- the matchups for next week on Thursday's show. But man, you talk about Buffalo, one of the worst run defenses by the grading going up against this Baltimore team. Buffalo, not a great tackling team over the last few years. Going up against Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, it's going to be an incredible matchup on uh, on Saturday night. Yeah, the Bills um, played with a lot of single high safety in this game, more than they usually do. They kind of changed what they did, and I think specifically clamped down on a lot of the running stuff. We were talking about going into this game. It was interesting because I think both teams theoretically wanted the same thing to happen. They would invite the Indianapolis run and um, – see where that went essentially because as long as they're running they're not passing over your head for the the devastating touchdown but instead they played an absolute ton of safeties um or safety in the box single high and actually ended up clamping down on the kind of short passing game forced philip rivers to go a bit deeper bottled up jonathan taylor for the most part you know naheem hines got some success but only had six carries um and actually won and, and did a good job against Indy by doing almost the opposite of what they expected them to do. And, and that's what we always say about run defense being a, a math problem, right? It's an, it, it, yeah. If you decide to bring the extra man down in the box, over time you're probably going to stop the run pretty well. It is a decision defensively. And, and even though we maybe didn't expect it, perhaps we should have. It's we, we, I always talk about rivers, outs, outdoors, in Buffalo. They're basically saying, let's make them one-dimensional and let's make Rivers make the throws. And Rivers did. He did. He he 
made some incredible throws down the field, did a really nice job spreading the ball around. Michael Pittman made some great plays, um, did have the fumble in there, but he did um, – he made some nice plays against Tredavious White. Uh, T.Y. Hilton, pending free agent, he made a couple plays at the intermediate level where he's great. Jack Doyle. Um, I love watching people describe Philip Rivers on Twitter. It is hilarious. I mean, it's just – everything looks different, right? It, he – he makes some passes sometimes where it's like in Madden, you're trying to throw a bullet and you accidentally tap it. And you're like, man, why am I throwing a curl route with loft on it instead of zipping it in there? But it still somehow gets through. And he kept, kept chucking it up. The tight ends, Jack Doyle and Trey Burton had 10 catches between them. And then Mo Alley Cox with four. I mean, it was just the tight ends for Indy did a really nice job. And that was Rivers distributing the ball. And Rivers had a couple of his best passes result in incompletions. Like he... I don't want to say he got screwed by his receiving core, but he got let down on a couple of occasions that would have been big. In a game that was as close as this, you know, there were a couple of plays that could have bounced his way and made it even closer. They had six drops. Jonathan Taylor had two, and some of those were just second and ten into the flat drop that would have made it third and three or third and two, and it just got them off um, off schedule there too. So those drops did hurt the Colts. But, you know, again, impressive win by the Bills. I thought the Colts did everything they could analytically and you know maximizing their their talent to to hang with the bills but the josh allen show man he was too good and then he did try to fumble in the fourth quarter yeah he and he did it, try to do too much on that one play one play and that was the difference right is that last year it was like an entire quarter of implosion at the end against houston um and this game it was one play one play he tried to do too much and be too much of the hero and the ball came out fumble um, and you're like uh oh is it happening again is this where Josh Allen goes back to being Josh Allen from last year and no like it was ba one bad play they happen move on and he didn't do that again um, but yeah I, I think that was a narrative coming into this game is a lot of people on the pregame shows were sort of saying you know is the moment too big for them like because last year was last year Josh Allen just absolutely collapsed late in that game and you know, tried the absurd blind lateral to a tight end, standing on the sideline kind of thing. This game, he didn't do that. So it, another area where he's developed from last year is that he hasn't – he's he's managed to rein himself in when the game gets close late in the fourth quarter. He doesn't go insane. He has, man. I mean, he is playing um, – he is playing with an incredible level of confidence. And I think when you just see that with a quarterback, it, it is taking the, taking the underneath stuff when it's there and then making the, the – taking the shot plays when they're there. And then to your point, when there's an unblocked blitzer remaining composed, juking him and then making another incredible throw down the field. So yeah, outside of that, that one fumble, it was pretty much smooth sailing for Josh Allen, 90 plus grade. in this one, let's go to the second game on Saturday, Rams at Seahawks Rams win 30 to 20. Um, I don't know if people didn't love this game because it was tough moving the ball mm -hmm. on both sides of the ball, right? It was John Wolford got the start for the Rams. He gets knocked out after just a handful of plays. Poor guy, by the way. Like, starts his playoff game, lasts a couple of snaps yeah. for what was deemed a legal hit. But frankly... That looks like a pretty cheap shot. To feels make. like it shouldn't be, right? Even if it is, like, it, it, how can you, how can you um, make a thing out of player safety and there's certain hits we're trying to take out of the game and you can't take a shot on a defenseless receiver over them? It, blah, all those kinds of things, right? Which I think are, are the right things to be doing to make this game safer how can you then look at that play and go nope he was a runner he's cool it was a forearm shiver to the head it was a head to the head it was like he led with the helmet i thought it was the 
I mean, he might have hit him with the forearm as well, but he came in like blasted him with I mean, his either head way, it was a, the helmet. It was a cheap shot. Wolford gets knocked out of the game. Jared Goff comes in with his surgically repaired thumb. Clearly, something was off there. He was a lot more conservative. What? Hmm. If only someone had predicted that as a thing. Good job, Doctor. On Monson. this podcast, Doctor Monson. Thank you. It's um. He's okay. He's all right. Is he though? He should be. Is he? Is he that different than he was in week 16 before he dislocated it? I couldn't possibly comment. I'm have, just saying that, look, you come back from a surgically repaired thumb after a couple of weeks, you're probably not 100%. I wasn't debating that. I was debating whether or not Goff would play. thought you said he would be fine. In fact, I think that was your wording. He'd As in, fine. like, he's going to play. He wasn't fine. What do you mean he's going to play? He didn't play. He, didn't get, he, didn't, he was benched. He didn't start. He only played because the starting quarterback got knocked out. Coach's decision. <laughs> yeah if you can in, be if you're healthy enough to be the backup you're healthy enough to be the starter as in you know what he's not going to start because he's got a broken thumb and can't throw the ball properly if aaron Rodgers was the rams quarterback do you think he got gets the start over john wolford yes why because he's aaron Rodgers. because the coach would make that decision right it wasn't the thumb it was I mean, to a point, <laughs> yeah. right? If the thumb wasn't a thing, they would not be starting John Walford. No, but they've right. stumbled into that, and you know, yeah. Now it's a decision, but it wasn't before. Coach's decision. Thank Shut you. Up. All right, I rest my case, Your Honor. Jared Goff with a forty-four passing grade in this one. Uh, there were open throws. They had open throws against Seattle. He missed a few. Um, they had opportunities there, I, but I, the other side of the ball, I keep coming back to this Rams defense, how incredible they were. It was essentially uh, Russell Wilson averaged outside of one play, and I, I'm, not, I'm eliminating this play to make a point. <laughs> On a drop back, from a, uh, per drop back, 2.7 yards. 2.7 yards per drop back for Russell Wilson outside of the 50-yard busted coverage touchdown to DK Metcalf. Which is a great play, by the way. Um, this was up until the garbage time stuff. So if it felt like Seattle just couldn't get anything well, going, even, moving the ball, they couldn't. I mean, use just the even just use the full numbers, right? It was four. I mean, it was four four, four yards per drop back, really. Yeah, but the, for the entirety of this game, this is the third time that Russell Wilson has seen that defense, and his grade was seventy-seven. Like the and that's the best. So it's gone steadily up every time he's seen it. In three games, Russell Wilson hasn't been able to get anywhere near an elite grade against this team he averaged 6.4 yards per attempt in this game at 174 yards 40 percent completion rate like russell wilson has taken three stabs at this and the best he's managed is like you know halfway decent yeah this the rams defense is incredible man Aaron, the big the big story coming out of this though is aaron donald's rib injury he um who did he land on was quarterback was it was it russ yeah okay, sacked yeah. russell like absolutely murdered mikey patty and then in the process of tossing Russell Wilson to the ground, I think landed on him and like a cleat to the rib or whatever. Yeah, so more, more rib injuries around the NFL. So Donald, I'm sure he'll play next week. We'll see if he's 100%. But man, up front, Rams are outstanding. And for the third straight time, Seattle could not get anything going up against this Rams defense. This is like the one game. This is the closest I came to like nailing a game this week in terms of exactly predicting what was going to happen. The Rams, for the third time of asking, did cause Russell Wilson no end of problems. They limited that Seattle defense. They 
basically or offense basically stopped it. And then the question became, could the Rams get enough going themselves on offense to win the game? In a way, they couldn't the last time they played them. Uh, the answer was yes, even if it required Jared Goff to come in and try and steer the ship as opposed to John Walford getting the start. Um, and that was that was the difference. Like this Rams offense was functional against the Seahawks defense. It isn't that good and just had a good game the last time they played. All right, let's, so after the game, Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll were both talking about being disappointed that they were unable to adjust to how teams played them down the stretch. Essentially, and now are they putting that on Brian Schottenheimer? Because I, first half of the, we talked about first half of the season, Russ. Second half of the season, Russ. It was night and day. He goes from the number one graded quarterback by PFF standards to about twentieth, nineteenth, mm-hmm. twentieth over the last nine games now. And dude, it was just that's one of the biggest season splits I've ever seen. Russell Wilson is on his way to. We put him in elite status. You know, he's up there with Patrick Mahomes from a grading standpoint over the last couple of years. He had not had a bad game, essentially, in, in a year and a half. He'd had, like, one you know average game in there and hadn't had those duds that we'd talked about throwing the ball down the field at an incredible level, and it just all disappeared. It just all disappeared in the second half of the season. And on top of that, when he was putting up a 95 PFF grade in the first eight games of the season, he was also getting the freebies, too. We thought he was going to break the touchdown record because there was wide-open, shallow crosses for touchdowns and running backs in the flat and screens and all – Everything Schottenheimer touched was turned into gold as well the first half of the season. So you have Russ playing at a high level, plus they're scheming up touchdowns. They're letting Russ cook. Everything is looking great, and it all slowly fell apart. A couple bad games in there, kind of got back on track. It is it is a really curious situation in Seattle, and it's interesting they're trying to maybe point it back to the play calling, the play calling that was incredible the first eight weeks to get them on track. So you remember how early in the season uh, the the whole narrative was let Russ cook and they're passing on first and 10 more than any other team in the NFL. They've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other end in terms of conservative to um, modern, (laughs) progressive play calling. Um, Generally, the theory, right, is that passing is more efficient than running. So on first and 10, like the most neutral situation possible, you should be passing to give yourself a better situation on second down and on third down, which makes everybody's life easier, right? So, Russell Wilson, you have a great quarterback. If you start passing on first and 10, you make his life easier on third and long, which is where you've been screwing him previously. So, for the first half of the season, the Seahawks were like the most progressive team in the NFL in terms of play calling. From week 10, including the wild card game, they dropped all the way to, where is that? 12th, 13th, sorry. So they went from the most progressive team to the 13th most progressive team. And that coincides basically exactly with Russell Wilson going from MVP Russ cooking up all kinds of Michelin starred goodies to, you know, Waffle House Russ (laughs) serving up whatever. It just happens to be around him. The other thing that was interesting, too, is how – so that's – it's huge, man. Because, you know, it's not as simple as, like, well, they should have just called more passes the rest of the year. But um, it is interesting seeing that – complete breakdown there and then you know they weren't really good on third down and we always talk about third down being unstable and being uh not the thing to say well this guy's great on third down therefore he always will be um, which is very counterintuitive right because we're getting into draft scouting season and the first thing people scouts are going to look look at and analysts are going to look at is how does trevor lawrence play on third down how does justin fields 
handle third down. And I think there's an element to that, seeing how they handle third down blitz packages and all these different things. But as far as results, Russell Wilson goes from one of the best third down quarterbacks to just it wasn't the same this year. And it was a little bit more conservative, too, as far as throwing the ball um, short of the sticks and everything. Part of being Russell Wilson and being so great the last few years is his controlled aggressiveness. The best quarterbacks in the NFL have high percentage of big-time throws, low percentage of turnover-worthy plays. That's Aaron Rodgers. That's Brady. That's Breeze through the years. That's Peyton, right? Wilson had been in that echelon, mm-hmm. knows how to take chances, knows how to drop it in a bucket down the field, create chunk plays without making a ton of bad decisions. And for whatever reason, third down, third and longs, they were a lot more conservative this year with Russ. They were, but I also... Uh, yeah, and I also think it's it's very easy to sort of forget or not even appreciate how much the team and the play calling and the first two downs affect the third down in terms of what's happening, right? So this was a story with Baker Mayfield last year that the Browns were so inept with their play calling and with what they were doing on offense that Baker Mayfield was facing more third and longs than any quarterback in the NFL. And that's just a bad situation to be in, no matter whether you're Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Kirk Cousins, Baker Mayfield, or Mitchell Trubisky. If you're facing a regular slate, of third and 10, unless you're Patrick Mahomes, like the one human that seems to be able to buck that trend. But unless you're fa- unless you're Patrick Mahomes and you're facing this regular slate of third and long, you're screwed. You're not going to look good. You're going to look bad because you have to force the play and try and make something happen that shouldn't be on the table. Um, and so that was the Browns last year. And for the second half of the season, the Seahawks didn't go full Browns. But they did put Russell Wilson in more of those situations. And I think that's material in terms of moving the needle from elite MVP, let Russ cook, Russ, to the guy we got for the second half of the season. His own team started to undermine him to a much greater degree than they had previously. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, I don't know where they're going to go from here because, you know, again, Wilson had a great season. I mean, he had 40 40 touchdowns during the regular season. Like, all that stuff happened in the the 16-game regular season, right? Um, But how much in the second half of the season was just going up against the Rams' defense three times? And, again, I want to point back to the Rams' D. As much as we talk about the instability of defense and all that stuff. Can we talk about that insane play from Darius Williams? Yes. So, let's start with that. Pick six on a screen. Yeah, effectively a bubble screen. (laughs) <laughs> you're just not supposed to do that like no. that it, the 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 he set off for that pick so absurdly maybe earlier than I've ever seen a cornerback jump one of those routes and that's ever. not and by the way from a because we evaluate quarterbacks it's not on Russ he cannot no. that's he, there's nothing he can do about that if right. the, the receiver missed the block now Freddie Swain I believe is a receiver trying to make the block he did not look like he was in good position but even, even so like it. Williams set off so early that it changes everything like it's one of those ones where it's not quite as simple as this, but if you see something like that or know it's coming or read it, anticipate it to such a degree that you change all the timing, right? There's almost nothing you can do about that. Like, Freddie, he didn't do a good job, Freddie Swain. On the other hand, Williams was like two yards closer to him than he was supposed to be at the point where he even realized something was happening, at which point it's kind of hard to say that's on you. It is, but he's not supposed to be there. Like you turn and look for this block and instead of being there, the guy is over here and already trying to get past you. Your chance of like reacting on the fly to that is pretty minimal. Yeah. My, I, I'm, I'm giving Darius Williams the credit for that. I yeah. mean, it, it's more of a great play by him. He rolled up. Um, Swain didn't have the best angle for it, but Williams just read it immediately. 
and Russ isn't, you know, again, you, you read, I, I read Twitter more during the playoff games because it's, you know, the, the only game going. And there's a lot of people, oh, that's a bad decision by Russ. No. You can't make, it's not even a decision. It's a screen. You yes. catch the ball and you throw it. It's, and there's an assumption that the receiver is able to make the block. Yeah, it's a little bit like the Malcolm Butler interception in the Super Bowl, right? Where it's when he jumps it that quickly, it's almost impossible to do anything about it. Like you can't, you can't legislate for that. Williams is not supposed to be able to do what he did, right? Now, either he had a read on something they were doing or it was tape study or whatever it was, he set off so stupidly early that it broke the play before the play even got going. And to even to get there and break it up, it would have been impressive. To pick it off the way he did and, you know, take it back for six, that was just – that's one of the best defensive players or defensive plays of the entire season. And Darius Williams has been doing it all season. Mm -hmm. 82.5 grade, including the playoffs, 83 coverage grade, had a 90 in this game because – you know, largely because of that pick six. But he has been – just that perfect complimentary corner to Jalen Ramsey, who they put a little bit more, you know, put a little bit more on Jalen Ramsey's plate on the other side of the field. Uh, Darius Williams plays a great number two. Troy Hill's been an excellent slot corner this year. John Johnson, again, talking free agency. We'll talk about the defensive free agents on Thursday and get into more detail there. But John Johnson is one of those, you know, really good safeties in this free agent class, like top five safety in this class that's loaded. He made a bunch of big plays. I just love the way this Rams defense is playing. Um, they they continue to take away the deep ball, and all that said, I can't wait to see the matchup with the Green Bay Packers because the Packers, the Saints, and the Bucks, the three teams remaining in the NFC, with Brady, Breeze, and Rodgers, they're the most equipped to maybe have the patience to play like the Steelers did last night, death by a thousand paper cuts all the way down the field against the defense that takes away the deep ball. Um. Just a word on Aaron Donald as well. Because of the injury, he only played 28 total snaps, 15 pass rushes. On those 15 pass rushes, he had two sacks, a hit, and three hurries. Six total pressures from 15 pass rushes. It was incredible. Like, at times, Again. Mike Upati, gen you, know, you talk about turnstiles on the offensive line. I genuinely think a turnstile would have slowed Aaron Donald down more than navigating past Mike Upati on half those snaps. Yeah. Dominant game again. And, um, you know, again, I've seen people debate this. How much do you give Brandon Staley, the defensive coordinator for the Rams, credit? And how much do you just say, man, they've got Aaron Donald. They have Jalen Ramsey at corner, guys that can just do special things and you can use in special ways. Uh, I think both both are true, you know, using the personnel in an incredible way, but also just love what the Rams are doing to slow down opposing passing attacks. Will be a great matchup with the Packers next week. All right, Saturday night. Tampa Bay Bucks at the Washington football team. Um, unfortunate that Alex Smith didn't get the start, you know, dealing with that calf injury. It felt like it could be a, a you know, Bucks in a landslide here, given that Taylor Heineke got the start for the Washington football team. But Heineke was incredible. Big time throws left and right, big time runs, scrambling for a diving touchdown on the pylon. Taylor Heineke, man, he was just awesome for the football team he really was like at the point where this if you had said that Heineke would go for 300 yards have a 92 PFF grade have a couple of great runs including a touchdown um and that all those all that production was going to happen for Washington and that they would score like 23 points I would have said co coming into this game that would have given them a pretty good shot of winning given what their defense was capable of but for the first time in a long time, 
we the, the Bucks offense was an, was asked questions and they had answers. And this was this is the thing for them this season, right? The part one is just get to the playoffs. Get to the playoffs, get through the games, win enough so that you're in the, the postseason. And then the second part of your season is prove that you have figured out answers to the questions that you've been asked along the way. And this is where it gets really interesting, and we'll get to that the next show, because New Orleans has asked them more questions than anybody else this season. For sure. Um, but this was the first sort of evidence that they haven't just beaten up on some bad defenses. They've actually discovered some schematic answers to some of the questions that they've been asked. And Washington's defense is good. It you know was capable of causing them issues, and it, it didn't. Like Tom Brady, the Bucks offense, have figured out or had figured out in this game, how to answer. Yeah, and look, it, we, we've talked about it midseason, you know, why do you add an Antonio Brown to the mix? Because you have you have all these options within a game, right? You literally don't, like, Rob Gronkowski didn't catch a pass in this game. There have been games where Gronk has caught seven or been a red zone threat or, or you know, made big plays up the seam. They didn't use Gronk in this game. All of a sudden, Cameron Brake goes for four catches for 80 yards. Antonio Brown was only targeted three times after the previous week's he was getting a ton of targets. They were going his way left and right. He had three targets, one of them, you know, 36-yard touchdown. So Brady has the ability to just play football and spread the ball around as needed. Really impressive effort from Mike Evans. Didn't even know if he was going to play. First ever playoff game. He catches six for 119. All six catches go for first downs. You know, he gutted through. You know, and then um, Chris Godwin, who I still think is awesome, goes from two drops the entire season five in a game to five in a game which was that ties the jerry judy record for what the hell are you doing but at the same and and it was funny because on the broadcast they're talking about brady thinks godwin's got the best hands he's ever seen um and it's not he's not wrong it's just they all seem to happen and by the end you know he caught the wide open one um cover two hole or whatever it was and it he just i mean he looked like me trying to he was just like oh, i'm gonna try to hug the ball at some point it certainly got in his head i mean he still had five catches for 79 yards and a touchdown like, and he, he had the one of the, you know the the second touchdown he dropped almost the entirety of his incompletions he 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 dropped one in the end zone on a slant that's the thing too like he gets open right he got yeah. he got mostly open on the touchdown it was a contested catch but he dropped it drops the 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 corner route and all that stuff um, but he was—he also had the touchdown where he ran away from Ronald Darby for a 27-yard score and all that. So Godwin's still going to be a weapon here going forward. But I just think the ability to spread the ball around and they, the fact that they had what, five receivers with at least 35 yards shows the depth that they had here. Um, they also ran the ball pretty well. Am I crazy? I thought Leonard Fournette looked a little quicker for whatever it's worth. I don't know if he looked the, quicker, but he looked good. I like, thought he looked—I thought he looked game. a little quicker and more decisive than he had. I know the run blocking helped a little bit more in this one than it has in the past, but I don't know about that, but I thought he looked as good as Lenny looks in this game, you know, made a couple of people miss, you know, had a spin move. Um, then late in the game, like they, you know, you see him catch a dump off and it's still like, you can't make people miss in the open field. No, he still can't. I'm just saying, um, I thought he was a little bit quicker and more decisive from a run game perspective. Hey guys, life is full of questions. Like what would happen to my family if something happened to me? Am I saving enough for retirement? And is now the right time to start thinking about life insurance, just to name a few. No one should have to settle for answers to these life-altering questions that involve gray areas or leaving things to chance. And with Western and Southern, you won't have to. Backed by over 130 years of experience gathering insights, building strategies, and helping customers choose the right solutions, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. 
Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments. Compensated endorser products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. Hey guys, after the year we've all been through, saving money should be at the top of everyone's resolution list. So if you're still paying insane amounts of money every single month for wireless, what are you doing? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans starting at just $15 a month. You could be saving money right now, and Mint Mobile makes it so easy to make good on your savings resolution. For people looking for extra savings this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just $15 a month. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan, and you get to keep your phone number along with all your existing contacts. If you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with their seven-day money-back guarantee. Switch to Mint Mobile and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. It's all at Mint Mobile. Um, so either way, I think from a Bucks perspective, do you sit here and say, Taylor Heineke picked us apart, which he did. There's a lot ideal. of holes yeah. in, the, you know, in the Bucks zone. On the other hand, here's the thing, right? I don't know that Drew Brees is capable of having the game that Taylor Heineke had in this game, which sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, but... Like, he certainly obviously can't run the way Taylor Heineke ran, but I don't know if he can make those throws either anymore. Not the throws Heineke made, but look, I think, I think people are going to overrate the last time we saw the Bucs and Saints play. 38-3, to and it, the Saints, it was like the Browns game last night. It was, you know, in prime time, and before you know it, it's, you know, 28 nothing, whatever it was, Saints. And at the time, I said, look, it's never as bad as it seems from a score perspective because it is literally a couple breaks here and there plus – the Saints outplaying the Bucks, So I think people might overrate that. But at the same time, Breeze and the Saints seem to have this Bucks defense figured out, right? And Breeze is the type of guy, if you give him holes in zones, like against the Bears yesterday, he's just going to hit open receivers. And he, he'll do it over and over and over again. So it might not look seven or six or seven big-time throws that Heineke had. It might not look the same, but... I think Breeze has the ability to, to move the ball against this Bucks defense. They're going to have to do a better job getting pressure and playing tighter coverage than they did against the uh, Washington football team receivers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I don't think Breeze is going to be inept. But if you look at this game and, you know, are like, well, Drew Breeze and the Saints are going to roll because Taylor Heineke carved them up. I mean, I think that's undermining or underselling to a degree how good Taylor Heineke was. Like, we – we think Taylor Heineke shouldn't be able to do this because he's Taylor Heineke, but he was genuinely incredible in this game, and that's why they had that kind of success. And the other, this was like a game of insane quarterback performances. One, because Taylor Heineke coming out of nowhere to play like that is pretty insane. And two, because Tom Brady's like 127 years old and looks like he's in his prime. Like, you watch Tom Brady in this game, and you're like, when is he going to retire because... So Drew Brees looks done, right? Like he's still able to get it, be able to have success because he's smart, he's accurate, he knows where to go with the ball. But like in, on the broadcast, they're like, I don't know, he's not coming back next year. And everyone's like, yep, sure, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, Look makes at him. Sense. Philip Rivers looks toast, right? The guy is like panicky in the pocket, <laughs> desperately heaves a ball downfield. It looks ugly, right? For the last 10 years, though. Rivers right, but, but again, somebody says that guy's retiring at the end of this year. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. Ben Roethlisberger, same age, looks cooked again. Somebody's like, Ben's not coming back next year. You're like, yeah, okay. I'm Tom Brady is older than all of those guys, and it doesn't look like it. He looks like he's in the middle of his prime and able to do exactly what he wants to do, make all the throws. It's 
insane. You see the graphic that they put up with him and George Blanda. Blanda <laughs> looks like 108. Like he does. Blanda looks like somebody's granddad was put in a, a football uniform, just just stubbed out his cigarette and put down his beer, and that was him. Like at the same age as Tom Brady, at the time he was a backup who also happened to place kick. Like, that was the day where you moonlighted as a kicker, which was the only reason he was still on a roster at that point. Brady's a starting quarterback for a team that wants to run to the Super Bowl and looks 20 years younger than him. And playing in a completely different scheme, throwing the ball down the field as much as ever. So, um, back to week 14, going back to week 14, Brady's last five games, and we know how we like to do sample size stuff, but last five games, 95 grade, number one in the NFL, 14 touchdowns, one pick. The interception, he hit it, Right, right. Scotty Miller's hands and he you know bounced up for an interception so he's it is we talk about big time throws turnover worthy plays right it is a great an incredible combination this year of Brady still being able to make big time throws and not putting the ball in harm's way in this Bruce Arians offense that's he did put the ball in harm's way a ton against the Saints in those two matchups so we'll see if he can make that adjustment but for me I came into this game saying if the Bucs move the ball against this Washington defense, they have not really played great against de good defenses. Hmm. I will have more confidence in that yeah. offense, even this against the big. Saints or against the Rams. If they have to go up against the best defenses again, I feel like they're starting to find their groove much more than they did earlier in the season. Coming into the playoffs, there were a lot of teams for whom there was an open question about whether they had actually improved any or if they just faced a slew of teams that made them look that way, right? There was Trubisky's run, there was Tom Brady, there was the Baltimore Ravens, there was, to an extent, Cleveland. Like, there was a whole bunch of these questions. This was a legitimate test for Tampa Bay, and that offense looked different. So it's a huge thing for them. I've said before that the most impressive thing from a quarterback I've ever seen was Peyton Manning, after the neck injury, reworking his entire game effectively on the fly after learning that he no longer had the physical ability to do what he once did in the game, right? Like, came back, tried to play like Peyton Manning before the neck injury, and realized literally in real time that, oh, this doesn't work anymore. I need to be a completely different quarterback. To change all of your muscle memory that you've built in for a decade and rework your game and then come back and be like an MVP is the most impressive thing I've ever seen. Tom Brady doing what he's doing right now at, what is he, 43 years old, might yeah. be overtaking that. Like, he hasn't had to deal with the neck injury the way Manning did. On the other hand, he's 43 freaking years old. That's ridiculous. Brady's beat, he beats Manning again? I mean, it's, it's certainly overtaking it. It's right. It's, he's drawn level with, that, with, that with, that, with what Manning did and is, is going past him. The one other thing to just keep an eye on, there was definitely a point, you and I both agreed, we said, look, Tom Brady, give him a clean pocket, quick release, he can still do it, right? But under pressure, just as much as we talk about the instability of playing under pressure, it just felt like, okay, this is, he's, he's done. With, you know, if, you, if you pressure him, if you hit him, he just, he doesn't, he's trying to not take hits. He's not going to make the same plays. In this game, though, more, more yards under pressure than any other quarterback in the, you know, this entire weekend. And the play of the game for me was the Bucs are trying to seal the deal. There's a bad snap. Hmm. Brady one-hands it, comes he's up. He's done a lot this year. Yes, he has. Right, the concentration that, that to, just, right, to just catch it with the one, one hand. that's low to the left. Right, one hands it without even like taking his eye off the defense. It was ridiculous. One hands the snap. The pressure comes in about one point five seconds. It makes the throw. He sees the pressure. Has to make the you know actually has to start his throwing motion when he's under pressure. Hits Mike Evans in stride for 35, 40 yards, whatever it was. 
and that essentially, you know, flipped the field and ended the game for the Bucs. And a big part of that, again, is like these are the hidden things that affect other things that we take for granted, right? Early in the season and last year, it's like, well, Brady can't play under pressure anymore. And you're, well, what, what affects your play under pressure? It's having open receivers and places to go with the football. Last year, the Patriots just didn't have receivers that could get open. So Brady looked like crap under pressure because there was never anywhere to go with the ball. Early this season, it wasn't the fact that he didn't have receivers that could get open. It was the fact that the scheme didn't give him anywhere to go with the ball. Now, part of, their, part of what we were talking about earlier of the, the offense developing answers is now when you hurry Tom Brady – he knows where to go. He's got an option. He's got a place to put that football. So even if you get quick pressure on him, the ball's going to come out. He knows, and it's going to come out and be somewhere that's actually viable as opposed to just throwing it away. So suddenly, Tom Brady goes from, oh, this guy can't play under pressure anymore. He's, that's, that's how his old man Brady is manifesting itself to actually, now that you've fixed the root cause of that problem, Brady is just good again. Man, it- so I, I can't wait to see that matchup again. Bucks Saints, the the third the third matchup. It looks like a bad matchup for the Bucks because of what we've seen. But does that even matter going forward? We've seen that times through history where it's like previous things don't necessarily matter going forward. And that was my take on the Ravens. As we get to Ravens Titans, smooth. Well done. That was good. Hmm. Do the previous things that you've seen actually matter? It is funny how people talk about Lamar Jackson as if he's like Dan Marino chasing a Super Bowl. Will Will Lamar ever right. win a playoff game? It's been three long years. In year will three. he ever win a playoff game? Lamar now ties Tom Brady. This is one of my big my best tweet of the weekend. Oh yeah. Lamar Jackson and Tom Brady and Baker Mayfield now tied with one career road wild card win. Huh. They're all tied with one. They all got their first road wild card win this weekend. Okay. That's the mind-blowing stat, though. That was Brady's first ever road wildcard game. Yeah. So Lamar gets the win, and boy, this was classic Lamar. An uncomfortable passing attack, right? Just wasn't completely on, you know, bad interception in there. Hideous interception. Really hideous interception. One of the best runs you'll ever see, 48 yards for a touchdown yeah. from Lamar, and just making – plays that quarterbacks aren't supposed to make runs for 136 on 16 carries throws for 179 on 29 dropbacks including five sacks so man Lamar took over man the the dudes were on the Ravens side this time yeah um so this is interesting because Baltimore was one of those teams with the open question right did they get themselves back on track or did they just face a bunch of defenses that can't really defend the run and, you know, <laughs> ran for 400 yards against the Bengals? Uh, and the narrative coming into this game was uh, the problem is I don't think you're going to know by the end of this game because Tennessee's defense sucks as well, right? So Baltimore's offense will probably roll. They'll probably have great success on the ground, which sets everything else up. Um, so they'll probably look like the Ravens again this week, and we don't, we still won't know whether they've got everything back on track. And as much as that's kind of true – because obviously Lamar went off they they had some big plays in there because of that like they didn't they didn't move the ball that easily like Tennessee's Tennessee's defense did what you would expect in terms of like if you're going to win this game that's not a bad that's not a bad outcome right but the problem was Tennessee's offense got destroyed like they got annihilated last time they played late in the game your guys 
the dudes, Derrick Henry and A.J. Brown took over, right, and just crushed Baltimore's defense, broke a bunch of tackles, and that was the difference. This week, Baltimore's defense went, no, not happening. We are stopping you guys. You guys are not beating us. And when you do that to the Tennessee's offense, it didn't have an alternative. It didn't have plan B. The level of disgust. I can't wait till somebody screenshots <laughs> the level of disgust in, in your face when you said <laughs> dudes. Yeah. 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 I, this was interesting because if you look at the Tennessee defense, and we, talk about, we talked about the Josh Allen play earlier where it's like chalkboard. Mm-hmm. Chalkboard was outstanding by the yeah. Titans. They played – it was like watching a Big 12 game where you, where you go three-man front. It, an impressive job by the Titans. The game plan was, was spectacular. That's what I'm saying. I think overall it worked. They went three-man fronts, the old tight fronts where you just you, you cover up uh, the, the tackles and, and you're, you're expecting those linemen to just do a little bit more against the run. You play too high, more of like a quarters-type look. They played that a ton. So you, get, you truly get like nine, play, nine defensive players in run support, which is what you need against the Ravens, but you don't compromise yourself against the pass. Schematically, it was great. You had Desmond King from a run game perspective – looking like the player that we've come to love, which is that that hybrid slot player who could play you know, like a linebacker-type run defense, and he's a good tackler and all these different things that he brings to the table. He made some big plays in this game. So there was so much to like about what the Titans did, but it was literally just like a couple plays, right? It was yeah. Lamar weaving through the defense for 48. Mm-hmm. It was a couple plays where um, our lead analyst, one of, the be- one of the best football minds in the world, Sam, when you look at what Ben Stockwell – uh, the guy who sees more football than anybody, I think, ever. What he has po- picked up from what the Ravens have been doing, essentially stealing extra blockers. They're doing a great job. You know, they always have like a backside puller or sifter, and they're just they're you they're they're schematically, you know, leaving because it's always about like leaving guys unblocked. They're leaving the rare guy unblocked and adding an extra blocker to the front of the of the run to the front side of the run. It's just a couple really good schemed up plays by the Ravens and a freak play by Lamar Jackson. Yeah. And the, but the Titans defense was really, really good outside of that. The other thing is, yeah, I, the story of this game is that Baltimore's defense did their job uh, better than anybody else. Like they, if the Titans had had the same kind of success that they had the last time they played, Baltimore's offense I don't think would have been enough to win this game. But that didn't happen. Um, the other thing that's really encouraging is Baltimore went in a hole early wasn't as bad as the last time that they met in the postseason but they did go down 10 points and they didn't panic um they like when they faced the Chiefs earlier this season when they got put in the same hole they basically immediately abandoned their game plan and went to that style of offense they don't really run well the the sort of standard drop back passing and ask Lamar to be Patrick Mahomes it just doesn't function um they didn't do that this time they went in a hole and they're like all right Calm down. Take a breath. It's early. We can still run the offense the way we want it to run. And as long as we put up points, it's okay, right? And they clawed it back, and they were able to then, like, continue with their standard game plan, which is how they win games. But this is, like, the difference between this game and, say, the Titans game last year where they fall behind. It Sometimes it really does come down to just one play. Like, last right. year, the Ravens got stopped on two fourth and shorts. Yeah. Something that they, again, went for properly, aggressively, made the right decision, and they just didn't execute the way they had in previous, the entire 2019 season. They didn't necessarily have those one or two plays that, you know, thwarted their drives or whatever it was in this game. So they did a nice job of playing defense and then allowing the offense to come back. But a big part of it is just not panicking and understanding that you have a lot of time left in the game. Like, you don't 
just because you're in a double digit hole does not mean you need to abandon your game plan and go to that style of offense to chase a game because you're not you don't need to chase it right you're yes you're in an ugly hole but you've got i mean they were they had a three quarters of the game left to play right that's plenty of time look at the the browns game last night right pittsburgh were in a 28 nothing hole in the first quarter and had plenty of time to bring that back right you don't need to panic if your offense is a specific style even if you get buried in a hole, you don't need to change it and go to a run-and-shoot offense to try and claw that back. You have the time. Now, that changes slightly if your defense doesn't do what Baltimore's defense did. Like, they would have had problems if Tennessee had continued putting up points. Now you've got to start thinking about chasing the game because you're not gonna, you're, they're going to keep going, right? So you need to somehow keep pace. But Baltimore's defense did stand up. They absolutely shut down Derrick Henry – and went, no, it's not happening today. And the the danger with a Derrick Henry, right? And one of the reasons that the running backs, the running back value thing is problematic is we talk, we've talked before about how defending the run is largely a conscious decision thing, right? And if you stack the box, if you put enough bodies in there, you can stop the run. Now, the problem with a guy like Derrick Henry, who spent all season showing you that you know, sooner or later, he's going to go nuts. And in the fourth quarter, he's going to break five tackles. And he's going to be the difference between winning and losing the game is you have this feeling now, I can't, we can't go away from him. Like we can't, we've got to keep giving him the ball. We can't, we can't pass up the opportunity for him to do what he did the last time these two teams faced. So we have to keep feeding him, even though like the circumstances are different. They're stacking the box. They are stopping Derrick Henry. You get kind of almost baited into this like shooting yourself in the foot thing so yeah derrick henry against eight men eight men or more in the box had 12 carries for 22 yards right 12 for 22 including 20 after contact yeah right? and again, so that means from like, a blocking standpoint the ravens are just winning up front and or they just they have the numbers advantage therefore you're, you're going to have right. somebody making contact at the line of scrimmage but his numbers against those eight man fronts this year are excellent so again you sure. get you get baited and tricked into this like we have to keep doing this, even though you know, like in a vacuum, of course you don't do that. If they've got eight plus guys in the box, stop running it. Like, that's just simple. But you know, you have Derrick Henry. You know, he's been good against these eight man. Like, when a guy has been um, winning the sort of the winning with the low percentage plays for long enough, you get tricked into the idea that, well, he's always going to win against those low percentage plays. He's special. He's different. And that this is the danger of that is that you right. get you essentially get lulled into keep pounding your head against a brick wall, even though you shouldn't. You're chasing it and chasing it. I mean, there was a point in the game where Ryan Tannehill had like six completions for 111 yards, right? I mean, it was, it was a very efficient passing attack, you know, shallow cross that goes for a big play, A.J. Brown making big plays. So there was a point where it's so efficient passing the ball. But again, you, you're chasing the, well, Derrick Henry has got to get, he's got to get his 100 yards. Right, right, and it does seem like the if the now the announcers mentioned that well, Derrick Henry's got to get to twenty four. Once you get him to twenty four carries, and I don't think that was the announcers' research. That feels like one of those things that came from the pregame meetings, like with the, the Schottenheimer twenty, the magic number of twenty three or whatever it was. It's like fifty three, fifty three. That's it. Yeah. Completions plus Run rushes. Attempts. Yeah, I mean that is that is people who don't like analytics using numbers the wrong way. Saying you can't look at numbers and then trying to use numbers, but well, doing people, it in the wrong way. It's people who want to prove a prove. It's people finding a number that backs up what they want to do anyway. Right? Yeah. Like I, 
I want to run the ball. Find me numbers that say running the ball makes sense. You're like, well, if you just get Derrick Henry to 24, you always win. Yeah, man. I, you know, A.J. Brown did end up with 10 targets. I'm not saying you just throw the ball to him all the time. Well, particularly but. the the interception, right? The game, the interception that basically lost in the game. Now his receiver fell down, so it's not all Ryan Tannehill. But on the backside of that, you have AJ Brown one on one, wide the hell open, beats his cornerback off the line, and is streaking down the sideline. And you instead throw the ball over the middle to a guy who, yeah. without even like being contested with the cornerback, just fell the hell over. That was Batson, right? On contact. I mean, my boy, Corey Davis got benched or whatever it was. Davis completely disappeared the last three games of the season. And um, I think that just not having him as the true number two that he normally is. He got hurt, right? Did he get hurt? I think so. Okay, sorry. Um, either way, he didn't catch a pass yes. yesterday or against Green Bay in week 16. He did not, not, did not do much over the last three weeks of the season. And uh, not having him, I think, absolutely affected this Tennessee passing attack. Yeah, but again, it's like... <sighs> There's a degree to which just do the simple thing. Why are you overthinking this? Like, you need to play late in the game. Derrick Henry's running into a brick wall over and over again. Okay, plan B is A.J. Brown, who's been pretty amazing every time you've gotten in the ball this season. Why not see if that's going to work? The one-on-one guy down the sideline. Let's throw it to him. Instead, it's like, no, let's force a ball over the middle that gets picked off and game over. Yeah, it was, look, impressive win by the Ravens. Um they did a nice job bottling up Derrick Henry. He finished so twelve carries against an eight-man box. He finished with eighteen carries for forty, long of eight. So they did their job, man. They did their job up front because yeah, you don't want him going for you don't. I mean, if you're the Ravens, you don't want him going for a hundred yards. You got to you know make those negative plays, and they you know put the Titans into difficult situations. The Titans' offense is one of the few offenses in the NFL where that approach to defense is the right one. Like usually. You would the woke way of playing defense now in 2021 is to do what Buffalo does, which is say, "Yeah, hey, we're gonna we're gonna back off the line of scrimmage. If you want to take that five yards a clip, be our guest because you know what? It's less efficient than if you were passing for seven yards a clip, and it's unlikely that you're gonna hit on a 70 yard touchdown bomb over our heads. So you know, let's uh, let's pretend we don't really know how to defend the run and invite you to do it against Tennessee." you are actually better off saying they're they a the thing that they want to do the most is to pound derrick henry into the line of scrimmage and b it is actually the way they're winning games so let's take that away because they're going to be really reluctant to stop doing it it's like when you put a darrell revis on your number one wide receiver and you're left with the choice do i accept that revis is on this guy and we can't throw him the ball in this game or do you force the ball into darrell revis's coverage because otherwise you're saying that your number one receiver is not going to play, not going to be a factor in this game. That's the decision Tennessee has to face when a team runs into a, a game like that with a nine, eight man box every play. You have to say, well, do we just not run Derrick Henry all game long because they're taking it away, or like do we embrace the fact that Derrick Henry is our best player on offense and pound him relentlessly into a, just a wall of bodies, knowing it's probably not going to work? And yeah. it, that, it is, it's the way you do it because it's a. Those are uncomfortable questions that offenses have to ask themselves. Yeah, look, I've, I've criticized coaches. I always use the Seattle example. I feel like Pete Carroll was chasing like the one game a few years ago where they ran the ball 42 times for 250 and Russ only had to throw the ball 17 times. It, to Mike Vrabel's defense, they've seen that way more often. They've seen it way more often where Derrick Henry has 
yeah. uh, rewarded them in the fourth mm-hmm. quarter, right? Rewarded them with um, with huge plays. Um, Vrabel had that bad punt, uh, punting in Ravens territory. And again, his explanation was essentially, I trusted the way our defense was playing. But like, can I, go ahead. everybody says that, right? That's the reason for punting in those situations. Like, well, I've got faith in our defense. I have never understood that as an explanation, just from a basic on the face of it point. If you trust your defense, surely that's a reason for going for it. Because if you crap out, you don't get it. And they get the ball at midfield. Who cares? Your defense is going to stop them, apparently. You trust your defense. Yeah. So why? I, I don't. I literally don't understand that explanation. It's like if you trust your same with the onside kick thing. If you trust your defense, then that means go for it because you can put them in a crappier situation and they'll bail you out. Yeah, it's not a reason to punt it. Punting it is a reason. That's not trusting your defense. I don't trust that our defense can hold them from midfield, so I have to bury it at their five yard line and give them ninety five yards to get it done. Yeah, it's it's literally the opposite of the explanation they give, yeah. and I don't understand that. The, the, the big point too in twenty twenty, and this happened in the Colts Bills game, twenty to thirty yards of field position really isn't much to make up. In twenty twenty, the way offenses move the ball, that twenty or thirty yards that you gain in field position is almost nothing, and your possession of the ball is far more valuable yeah. than the twenty to thirty minute twenty to thirty yards of field position, and that's the bottom line. You just you need the ball to score. Um, unless you have Darius Williams pick sixing uh, screens. Second game yesterday, Bears and Saints, twenty-one to nine. It was twenty-one to three until the walk-off touchdown. Mm. Trubisky to Jimmy Graham. What a catch! Mitchell, poor Mitchell. Of of all the games, he actually made a bunch of big-time throws in this one. Of all the times that we've trashed him, isn't this kind of fitting though? It's like the Denver Drew Locke Jerry Judy thing, right? It's like you let Jerry Judy down all season long, and then the one time you like have a have a game, Jerry drops like five passes, and you can't get anything done. Trubisky earns the Nickelodeon Valuable Player, or whatever it was that he got, yeah. because he had a big time throw. If if Javon Wims just catches that fifty yarder for a touchdown, God, that was a terrible. His number, Trubisky's numbers look better than Breeze's numbers. Yeah, he actually threw the ball slightly. Breeze wasn't bad by any means. Breeze was fine. Um, but Trubisky was making big-time throws left and right that didn't show up on the stat sheet, yep. poor guy. Yeah. I mean, all true. <laughs> Trubisky was not the reason that they lost this game. They had a reasonable – he had a reasonable game and played at the kind of level where you're like, oh, if Trubisky has a game like that, the Bears win most games. Um, but as I say, it's, I, I, it's probably not a coincidence that those quarterbacks that consistently let their receivers down eventually when you have a game where it all comes when, – when they start playing well, they get let down by their receivers. That probably isn't a coincidence that it happens so often. Yeah. Like, it's the thing Steve Smith would talk to us about, right? When you have that stretch where the ball's just not coming your way and then suddenly the ball arrives, you, you're not used to it. You, it. It does weird things to you. You need to get – uh, you need to get in the groove of catching the football. So, like, if you're if you're out there endlessly and Trubisky's just burying the thing into the dirt seven yards away from you, suddenly when the ball arrives in your hands, it's it's not normal. It's unusual, and you panic and you screw it up and you drop a perfect touchdown pass that would have had a big impact in the game. The Bears had two key injuries: Darnell Mooney out and Roquan Smith out. Uh, two guys that I thought. I mean, Mooney's their deep threat, rookie speedster. He may have been the guy that was getting that pass that Javon Wims dropped, you know, like being the guy that gets behind the defense. Um, and then Roquan Smith is the guy that's supposed to be able to, you know, curb the underneath passing attack and all that stuff. I just go back to the Saints and just how good they are overall. And Breeze 
What I was trying to say on the pregame show is even though the overall grade isn't great for Breeze, it was mostly brought down by turnover-worthy plays, mm -hmm. right? And ones where his arm just couldn't make it. And what's the likelihood that Breeze simply makes – just eliminates two or three bad decisions in a game and says, oh, okay, I can't really make that throw. I'm not going to try. And he did that in this game. The passing game at times was just so quick. Balls out of his hands, lightning fast, two open receivers, two Michael Thomas. And then you have a guy like Deontay Harris who is so fast – so quick himself he catches all seven of his targets for 83 yards and you then you get a guy like Lil jordan humphrey catches a little like on third and 10 underneath pass rumbles for 14 i mean the all-around effort that the saints had from all of their playmakers and breeze distributing the ball was was just outstanding and what makes the saints really difficult to defend even with a drew breeze that you that can't really throw the ball down the field effectively unless the guy's wide open yeah, last time the Saints played the Bears, the issue was that Drew Brees had turnover-worthy plays, right? Now, they didn't come back to haunt him. They didn't cost him in the end, like he got away with them. But if Drew Brees, if Drew Brees puts the ball in harm's way, this offense has some problems uh, because he isn't the player that he used to be, and he can't offset that with, like, insane bombs deep down the field and all those kinds of things. He needs to be efficient and, and not put the ball in harm's way and risk averse and in this game he was like he didn't have a turnover worthy play and so him being conservative and getting the ball out quick and all those kinds of things it's not a problem because the Saints are that team the Saints are what the Pittsburgh Steelers tried to be for most of this year in that they can kill you with a thousand paper cuts Drew Brees if you're if all you're going to give him is the five yard stick route or the five yard out or he'll take that all day long and there aren't that many quarterbacks that are capable of doing that it sounds insanely easy right you're giving them the a sequence of the easiest passes that you're ever going to get but when you have to do 50 of them um a 50 of them like there's a lot of chance for you to screw that up somewhere along the way but b most quarterbacks just get impatient and they get fed up with that and they're like right. I'm, I'm i'm done with these five yard idiot passes i'm taking a shot and the shot you take is the thing that burns you and that's why you get into trouble Drew Brees and Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, those guys in part are as good as they've been through their careers and their lifetimes because they don't do that. They don't get impatient and they don't take a stupid shot when it isn't there. If you're going to give them a five-yard pass 55 times, they will take it 55 times. And it functioned, right? Chicago's defense is good and Khalil Mack was insane, but he can't get there. Like if the ball's coming out that quick, he just doesn't have the time to work with. And if Drew Brees plays like this, the Saints can win. Yeah, so early in the game, it felt like the Bears were playing a lot of spot drop zone. So picking apart zone, that's Breeze's game. And again, with how quickly he's getting rid of the ball, his connection with Michael Thomas picked up right where that left off. Uh, Thomas caught five for 73, had the touchdown. It was the slants and spot routes. And the Saints do such a good job of just spreading things out horizontally underneath. Then it was like, okay, the Bear, Bears got to play a little bit more man coverage. And they did. But it was like Deontay Harris is being covered by Eddie Jackson, a safety, whoops him on a deep out. I mean, so... Again, the Saints have answers. And can Breeze throw a 15-yard out? Yes, because he throws it with anticipation. He throws it early. And he knows, you know, and his guys separate pretty well. So yeah. the Saints have enough answers offensively, even though, to your point earlier in the show, that you've said all season, right? Breeze does look like he's done. Like, physically, he's not the same guy that he's been in previous years. But they have enough. They have enough offensively, enough answers. And then was the one the one deep ball that he hit, you know, it's wide open. You just, you, if you get behind the defense, he could at least loft it up there and let you catch it. So, hmm. um, 
Saints did a really good job, even though they put up they put up the twenty one points. It could have been twenty eight if the goal line stand at the end there. Um, Saints defense though too, really incredible along the defensive line, even without Trey Hendrickson, their third best pass rusher with the most sacks. Uh, really impressive across the board there. And honestly, when you just watch the game and you see how many defensive backs are making plays for the Saints, from PJ Williams to you know, Marshawn Lattimore and Janoris Jenkins is always flying around making plays. I mean, they've, they're so deep in the right areas defensively. You're leaving out the biggest playmaker they have. Who did I forget? Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, whose biggest plays is getting the opposing receiver rejected CD, on a CD consistent 22. basis. Yeah. That guy must be the best trash talker in the NFL. He's had three people take a swing at him this season, one of which was his teammate. That's incredible. So that's going to be one of the storylines next week, by the way. Because remember, Marshawn Lattimore has shut down Mike Evans. Yeah. The Saints have demoralized the Bucs. So what you do is, right, you put Marshawn Lattimore and Mike Evans, and then you send Chauncey Gardner-Johnson over to trash talk Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown. Antonio Brown will do something to get himself ejected from the game. Like, this is, and then you set Chris him on. Chris Godwin's already in his own head after right. dropping five. <laughs> Godwin, Godwin's done. They, they, God, Ch- Chauncey Gardner-Johnson is the key to next week's game through the ejection that he can force. The stuff that we cannot quantify on our spreadsheets is going to be the most important thing, I think, on that Saints-Bucks <laughs> game. Because on one hand, is it the Saints are so in the Bucks' heads after beating them twice, and you know the Evans-Lattimore thing, and all these other things going on, or is it one of those things that you see in sports often where the bulletin, bulletin board material and you just disre- disrespect me like is Mike Evans so disrespected he's just going to show up and ball out against Lattimore or is it just I don't know it's just been such a lopsided matchup recently Lattimore is going to win it's it's you know it's going to come down to those types of you know mental toughness on both sides of the ball also we've got postseason Tom Brady now so I mean, that's just he's not losing really hmm. oh boy uh, it's going to be a great matchup. Brady Breeze 3. It's the last game on Sunday evening, 6 o'clock or whatever it is, Eastern time. Right, let's go to last night's craziness. If you subscribe to the PFF Daily, you already have it in your inbox. We talked about the biggest surprise of Wild Card Weekend. Super Wild Card Weekend. Maybe it was the Browns. Go listen and check out if you haven't already. If you haven't subscribed to the PFF Daily, go and do that right now. But the Browns win 48-37. to 37. <laughs> got out to 28 nothing that 28 nothing lead before you even blinked first quarter 28 to nothing what a ridiculous start to this game Marquise Pouncey snaps I mean, it over Roethlisberger's head for a touchdown we just just settle for a second and be like our, one of the best defenses in the NFL just gave up 48 if you're ever in that if you're still riding the defense wins championships bandwagon come on that doesn't count what do you mean it doesn't count because they gave up seven so seven of it came on the Pouncey uh-huh. snap okay but how much did the defense give up how many short fields were they forced to play on right they still gave up a lot of yardage there was three other turnovers in that first half yeah by the Steelers it was all short it was all short stuff they also gave up a lot of yardage Baker yeah, threw for over 300 right did he I think so. 263 Baker played a really good game they ran really, all over them the really defense gave up game. a ton um yeah, the, the, I said in the daily that that game reminded me a little bit of the Super Bowl with Peyton Manning and the Seahawks. You know, where again, first play right was a bad snap, just immediately set the tone for, oh well, this is going to go that way. Like this is this is a game that's going to hell right out of the gate, and there's nothing you can do about it. That was what happened here. Pouncey airmails it over Roethlisberger's head, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that Pouncey usually grades like crap at PFF because 
He generally has more bad snaps than any center in the NFL, and it's not a rare thing. Like, this is his M.O. He had another one late in the game. Somehow, uh, Roethlisberger, A, snagged it from, like, low along his ankles. Great play. B, got the handoff to the running back who managed to convert. But Pouncey almost cost them a key. Was it a fourth down conversion or a third down one? I want to say it was fourth and one. Right. It was certainly and one, right? But Pouncey almost cost them that play in addition to the air mailing the snap. It was a running play where the – the timing of the play got completely thrown off by the snap, right. and then James Conner was stuffed. Yeah, it was like a second effort and by him to get across. Made, yeah. But, like, the the difference, that could have been essentially another bad snap by Pouncey costing them a key conversion in that game. So he was bad. Um, Roethlisberger just couldn't get out of the hole that he dug himself or that they dug himself. They dug themselves between the bad snap, the interception early. They started to pull it back. And then, you know, the, the, we're all talking about momentum and – is this the Browns tightening up, getting, you know, knowing this is happening, choking? Is the talent differential eventually starting to show? You know, look at the DBs that the Browns are trotting out. Look at the offensive linemen that they're dealing with. Two guys in that game who uh, Alex Van Pelt, the guy that was uh, play, calling the plays, had said he hadn't met. It was incredibly. Like literally had not met the guys who were on the field starting. They had they had some guy. So the did you hear uh, Baker's quote at the end of the right, game? Right. What was it? Was great. So essentially, he said, uh, "So Michael Dunn filled in for Joel Batonio at left guard. Michael Dunn had about 300 career snaps, <laughs> played really well. Yeah. In that game, he gets hurt, and a guy named Blake Hance comes in. Uh-huh. And I'm a, I'm an NFL analyst. I shouldn't be. I, I actually know Blake Hance. But even Baker Mayfield, his teammate, said Michael got hurt, and then a guy named Blake came in who I had just <laughs> met before the game <laughs> yeah look this is absolutely incredible what the put they, in perspective what the browns have done over the last few weeks it or is, had to deal with yeah so losing all of their receivers to the hot tub covid um kevin stefanski was in his basement for this game not allowed to call the game because he had covid very relatable the starting offensive line coach starting offensive the, the offensive line bill coach, callahan right awesome bill callahan and his assistant offensive line right. coach were not there because they had covid so they cut they panned to the sideline to the dude that was like acting offensive line coach that day look like some poor like you know i intern that they just drugged in there through a threw a headset on like you're coaching the offensive line today and by the way two of your starters aren't like have never played he was their game, have have fun game management coach yes like chris was like i don't know if that's a demotion or a lateral move or and, what and but the, he's all line coach the game today. management coach i'm pretty sure is the dude that like boosts andy reed's red flag in two minutes so he doesn't get a penalty for trying to challenge during the two minute you know booth period yeah like i'm pretty sure that's the guy we're talking about here yeah. the guy that walks up to andy reed and like lifts the red flag out of his pocket when we get under two minutes and runs away. That's the dude that was acting as offensive line coach during a game where multiple offensive linemen were basically in the building that day, like fresh. Um, so for, for the Browns to overcome all of that and win this game against a team that they just struggled to beat their backups effectively a week ago is kind of mental. Yeah, the Jack Conklin also only played 17 snaps. Michael Dunn, one of the better run blocking grades on the team. J.C. Treader, again, I love the, the Sunday Night Football crew, the boss. They do a great job of highlighting key blocks on plays. J.C. Treader pulling on the Kareem Hunt, uh, first Kareem Hunt touchdown, taking his guy to the ground and also making a key block on the big screen to Nick Chubb. This, you know, the, the two-headed 
running back tandem of Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt. Man, they just made a ton Chunt. of huge plays. Don't try to combine the there's, there's no good which, way to combine the Which one do you prefer? Just do like thunder and lightning or whatever. The old no, school. you can't do that. They're thunder and thunder. Do we yeah. ever have, like, who was the official thunder and lightning? Because I always think of the TJ Duckett Wart Dunn for some reason. But that, yeah, there's got to be a better one than that. Jags fan here. So Fred Taylor and Maurice Jones Drew. No. Were they were never. But that was also like Jimmy Smith and Keenan McCardo were kind of thunder and lightning as receivers. No, you can't. It's got to be a running back tandem. Who was Earth, Wind, and Fire? Austin? A, a band predates austin's existence yeah but there's some sort of uh oh the giants backs brandon jacobs, brandon jacobs. And ahmad bradshaw yeah. and who's the third tiki it's not tiki there? right no. Tiki's david wilson david wilson was never part of a nay a nickname surely get out of here get anyway. out of here austin austin's stop ruining the podcast us messages and we're being distracted that's our fault anyway i'm just look and plus baker just a really clean yeah. game. A really again. clean game. So, again, game. the Browns were another one of these teams, right, coming into the playoffs. Like, how much of Baker Mayfield's resurgence was real and how much of it was just look at the defenses he's played. And every time he's faced, you know, one more question, a step up, he's actually answered the call. And the Baltimore, the second game, okay, there was a horrible interception in there. But other than that, he played pretty well against a defense that murdered him the first time around. Pittsburgh, same kind of thing, right? The first time, Steelers destroyed this offense. Second time, it was the backup, so did it really count? Third time, Baker Mayfield carved this defense up. Now, as you said, a bunch of short fields, a lot of things working in his favor, but like Mayfield looked legit. He did not look panicked, did not look flustered. And again, there were like things that, that were, if you were going to trigger a relapse into like bad Baker, things were happening that would cause that right offensive lineman going down dude that you just met trying to protect your blind side on the right hand side like all these kinds of things um thank you for calling the right side the blind side well when he's looking left thank you um all these kinds of things that could easily have like you know triggered this pavlovian relapse into panicky baker in the pocket and a hideous interception and oh no the game's just gone away from a 28 point lead the browns are still the browns nope baker mayfield dealt with it dealt with it all looked calm came up with a couple of those big runs that he's had that he had last week you know put the team on his shoulders to a degree and looked assured looked like he did have answers he's had a eight going into the game he's had 18 first downs uh, as a runner this year and 10 had come over the last four weeks and i know it sounds it sounds simple and i've talked about the qb running game quite a bit um on the show all the time and baker's not the dude you know, he's not going to go run for 80 yards or anything like that but just picking up a handful of first downs here and there over the last few weeks, I think has been huge for this offense. And I think that is one of the big differences for Baker in his game. At times when he was either in previous years inviting pressure or maybe throwing the ball away or just not, just not, he's just turning negative plays into positives, right? And I think he's picking his spots as a scrambler. And again, it's only a couple hand, it's a couple first downs per game, but he had a big one last night. I think that's been a huge part of his game as well and it, it to me it, it's speaking to his demeanor you know yeah. last year he was playing well vacating clean pockets yeah. and all that stuff now he is running and he's running decisively and he's like all right team i'm gonna go make this play for you um and that's just been a huge part i think of the browns turnaround so here. yeah last year and before when he was playing badly when he was taking off it was to just it was without direction right he would yeah. just panic and run around in the back in the backfield and essentially wait until it was too late 
and then try and outrun a better athlete to the sideline, right? And you're, you're done. Now, when he runs, he's immediately taking off for positive yardage. Like, he's, he understands quicker when the play is dead and is making something out of it himself. And it's a, diff- it's a completely different prospect. So he's not, it's not like he's become more athletic, right? He hasn't suddenly developed this speed that takes him past uh, big defenders that are chasing him down, but he's moving quicker. He's moving more decisively, and he's not, like, inviting them to the point where it's a foot race um, before, he, before he does it. So, look, I, I don't know how much, how much do you glean from all of this, right? The Browns' impressive effort, right? Mm-hmm. But I always come back to it's Is it as good as the scoreboard would indicate? The Steelers came back in part because the Browns were playing really soft coverages and um, call them the Pittsburgh paper cuts. The paper cuts came back death by a thousand paper cuts they just went dink and dunk all the way down the field ben roethlisberger set an nfl record 47 completions for 501 yards and that's how they got back into the game but which was probably always the game plan for cleveland right you you don't have denzel ward you're you the game plan against the steelers offense is honestly probably what they did which is let's back off let's play very soft and let's make them beat us with a thousand paper cuts because the steelers are not the Drew Brees offense. They're not the Tom Brady offense. They're not a Peyton Manning offense. They don't do well. They haven't been efficient with that system. It's what they try and do, at least for the back end of this year, but they haven't been good at it. So let them hang themselves. Like give them the rope and let them go let, let them go nuts. Um, the fact that it was as successful as it was was partly for partly due to the fact that you're playing way soft because you got the big lead, right? As opposed to just the standard game plan. But also, again, like, look who was lining up in the defense for you. Like, MJ Stewart had a really good game, but that dude is like a safety cornerback hybrid and was targeted like 16 times, right? Eventually, that's going to pay off for some yardage and some touchdowns. So, again, the, the Browns ran away with this because of snap over the head. Big Ben throws a pick, which is on him. Some of the picks weren't on him. Batted pass, tipped passes. But the Browns, all of the turnovers went their way as we spin it forward, and they need to beat the Chiefs next week on Sunday. They probably need a few of those breaks to go their way there as well i'm bummed that that mayfield and the browns faced the chiefs during his rookie season and it was you know good but not great um kansas city put up insane points but the time before that was one of the most absurd box scores in football history versus oklahoma saturday night game a 66 to 59 win for the oklahoma sooners uh, Baker Mayfield threw for 545 yards and seven touchdowns with no interceptions. Patrick Mahomes, in a losing effort, threw for 734 yards, five touchdowns, and one interception. Um, and also rushed, by the way, for 85. Patrick Mahomes accounted for over 800 yards of offense and seven touchdowns in this game. Uh, Baker Mayfield had, you know, two for 19 scrambles. Had, a, had, a, had another 19 to his total. This is, it was one of those but games like, where what, it's like... But that's like, 800, that's, yeah. that's like... 1,350 yards of offense between those two quarterbacks and 14 touchdowns. I hope we see the same thing this week. I mean, it, <laughs> and it could be games, the way those teams are playing. The Big 12, yeah, they didn't play defense well and all that stuff, but they were also big-time throws left and right. It wasn't like every throw was wide open. It was like step of separation. Those dudes are putting it on receivers down the field. It was but the Browns are like incredible. racking up, you know, 48 against the Steelers, 40 whatever it was, 45 against Tennessee. The Browns have had games where they put up like monster production, and obviously Kansas City is capable and willing and eager to get into a shootout any occasion they want. If again, you know, the the payoff, the reward for suffering through the 2020 year of COVID and all these kinds of things should be an Aaron Rodgers versus Patrick Mahomes Super Bowl, right? It's, it's what we all deserve. 
I also think we deserve a rematch of 66-59. Or, or Brady Mahomes. Yeah, that too. Brady Mahomes would work too. But I, yeah, we, I also we think just, we deserve next week a, a 66-59 Baker versus Mahomes repeat. We got, we got a Browns win though. A, a Browns playoff win. Congrats to the Browns. Uh, Steelers will figure out where they're going to go from here. But they went after being undefeated. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people at PFF calling them underrated or overrated, overrated. as an 11 and 0 team. Finished the season 1 and 5. Yeah. Including some just ugly. And the one was a big comeback after being 24 7 down. Something yeah. I mean, like that. They're, they're essentially a second half comeback away from the Colts from losing their last six. Yeah. So. 48-37, the Browns move on. Go check out the PFF Daily. We had more on this game and the Browns' incredible effort. First playoff win since 1994 when Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells were both wearing starter jackets on the sideline. All right, so what a weekend. I, I enjoyed it. Six games. Did you enjoy the new Super Wild Card weekend? Wall-to-wall action from 1 p.m. on Saturday through last night. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, the worst part about it was the moniker Super being thrown on it for reasons passing understanding. But it's pretty much just wild football itself now. was good. Yeah, it implies that it's going to like go back to normal at some point. But this is it. Like this is how the playoffs are now, until so they expand it again, and they'll go super duper wild card weekend. <laughs> the wildest of wild cards, starting soon in the NFL when they expand. All right, let's get into some offseason talk, some free agency. We talked about the entire free agent class the other day. Let's focus on the offensive side of the ball right now. And part of our discussion the other day was. The receivers at the top. And we saw some of those guys or a few of those guys in action this weekend. Chris Godwin, Allen Robinson, and Kenny Galladay. Um, I think there was healthy debate. They're all free agents. Healthy debate as to which one's the best free agent. I think Chris Godwin's going to get franchised. I'm expecting him to be back with the Bucks. Allen Robinson could absolutely hit the market and for the first time in a long time or maybe ever. Does he go say, I, I want to play with Aaron Rodgers. I want to play with a great quarterback I want to put up right like if if a year from now Allen Robinson leads the league in receptions like Stephon Diggs did or puts up huge numbers a year from now with a better quarterback wouldn't be surprised I'm ready to move Robinson over Godwin too as wide receiver one in this class but Godwin Robinson and then Kenny Galladay I'd say the prizes of this wide receiver class if they all hit the market I mean most of the time you know free agents etc are just going where the money is best you know, and everything else is a secondary consideration. I think Allen Robinson at this point owes it to himself to have money as a secondary consideration to who the hell is the quarterback that's going to be throwing me the football. Um, Because, you know, we keep talking about this like, man, I feel sorry for Allen Robinson. Look at the guy's list of quarterbacks, even dating back to college. Like that dude had Christian Hackenberg throwing him the football at Penn State. Blake Bortles, Mitchell Trubisky, Nick Foles. It's been just this never-ending train wreck of, of quarterbacks. He's literally never had a quarterback that's any good throwing in the ball dating back to at least high school. Um, and, and he's still incredible. He's still a top-ten receiver with those circumstances. So everybody is always like, come on, just get the guy a quarterback, any kind of viable quarterback. And when you, whenever you put that out into the public domain, into the ether, you get this slew of people that are like, he chose this. Allen did this to himself. He could have gone to Green Bay with, with the Packers, and instead he chose Chicago. Um, so he, I think, owes it to himself to not do the same thing, right? To not go wherever the hell the money is the, the highest and to actually find himself a quarterback as part of this, um, as part of this dating program that he's going to be going on in the offseason. Find somebody 
that's capable of getting you the ball. Don't just take the, the best offer on the table. It's part, part of the debate here, too. It's, it's Robinson's third contract he'll be going for here. Godwin, Chris Godwin, his second contract for the Bucs. Galladay, one of the better deep threats in the league. Great body control, contested catch, um, genius, but just, you know, really a lot of people liked him coming out of Northern Illinois a few years ago, but, man, he is even exceeded probably their expectations. Galladay is interesting, too, because – Matthew Stafford's probably the perfect type of quarterback that you would want to put yeah. him with, right? That pairing is awesome because Stafford's going to give you opportunities down the field. So I don't know if Galladay's going to find a better option as far as allowing him to make big, uh, big plays. But, you know, again, he's one of those prizes that you just want to build your receiving core around. And the Lions have a ton of decisions to make now because all of their guys are free agents in that receiving core. I think the second tier of wide receivers are interesting as well from Will Fuller who we've always talked about as that quintessential deep threat that opens things up for the rest of the offense. Do you think that changes based off what we saw this year? Will Fuller? Yeah. So Will Fuller was always confusing because, um, like, the question was always, what what is the difference between a Will Fuller and one of these other deep threat speed receivers that doesn't really do anything? And the reason it was a question is because the splits with Will Fuller on and off the field were insane, right? Even – even understanding the fact that New Hopkins was your number one weapon and the best receiver, one of the best receivers in the NFL, Will Fuller seemed to be the thing that transformed the Houston Texans offense. When he was on, Deshaun Watson looked great. The offense had insane numbers. And when he was off, it all fell to pieces a little bit. This season, you ship off DeAndre Hopkins to Arizona for a bag of peanuts. Um, and you're like, well, it's okay because Will Fuller's still there. He's the thing that makes this offense actually function. But that didn't happen this year. Will Fuller splits on and off are like the same. They didn't – suddenly it turns out that actually whatever was at work with the new Compkins, Deon, or Deshaun Watson dynamic in terms of what that forced him to do from a progression standpoint, from a playing the game uh, methodology, whatever it was was significant in terms of determining how Will Fuller approached the game or how he affected the game. And when you take away that and you force Deshaun Watson to play the game – more honestly, the Will Fuller impact disappears. Yeah, I mean, Fuller, I think Fuller showed a, a different skill set too, where he could be, you know, more of a slot receiver and, and spread, you know, move around and do more things. Either way, I don't think it changes the value of what he brings as a, as a field stretcher and a guy that you can create those chunk plays with. And as a, he's a number two. I mean, he's a number two, which is not a knock. It's just you're bringing something to the table where if you have a better complementary piece, like a, like a new Hopkins, things could go really well for your offense. So I think Will Fuller will still be coveted out there. The next tier of receivers, though, like Juju Smith-Schuster, definitely a complimentary piece. Corey Davis maybe dropping in the rankings after you know injuries, but also disappearing down Hall the stretch. Famer. He's a number two. He's a complimentary piece. T.Y. Hilton at this point in his career, a complimentary piece. Uh, Curtis Samuel, an interesting one as teams get uh, more creative. You've talked, you've written about receivers lining up at running back and how that stresses – defenses they started to do more of that with Curtis Samuel this year and got the most production out of him in Carolina do they try to bring him back gonna be tough when you already have Robbie Anderson and you have DJ Moore so for Curtis Samuel I don't love him as a traditional receiver but I think you have to have a plan mm -hmm. for using him and creating those mismatches he's an interesting one and then Marvin Jones for the Lions all of these receivers are in our top 50 and guys that can make an impact as a number two slash number three in the right system it's really not a great free agent crop overall it's really good at the top and then it falls off quickly but I think wide receiver is the one position where that's different there's a lot of really talented wide receivers that are really useful and even if you go beyond the top 50 
you get into some really interesting names. Like Nelson Aguilar for the Raiders this season has been what they drafted Henry Ruggs to be. Like Ruggs has been absent without leave, and why has he not been a bigger part of this offense? But Aguilar has been the guy that's been catching the deep bombs, that's been making all those big plays. And that honestly was what Aguilar was at USC. He was catching all these deep targets. It's just that when you suddenly put him in press coverage on the outside, he can't really get in a position to, to make them. But he's been making those big plays. And it's different to the player he was when he had his one good year in Philadelphia as well, where he was in the slot operating all these horizontal jet motion, all these kinds of things, the quick, shallow cross. Um, so he's a really interesting guy because it's only it's like one year of it. So he can you trust sense. it? So, right. He does, it's, it's like, I don't understand what you do with that. But if you get Aguilar from this year in your offense, it's a, it's a difference maker. Like, it's a Will Fuller cha- game changer. Ranking Aguilar was really difficult for us. We put him at 60 overall on the free agent list. And it's because he's got five years in the league, three of which were bad. Yeah. And then really to bad. your point, the two good seasons that he had looked completely different. A yes. slot receiver and a deep threat. Right. And if you knew you were getting this year's Nelson Aguilar, that's probably a top 30 free agent. It's this, a top 30 free agent, and it's the first-round pick that he was. Like, it, yes. it, it makes sense when you look at his USC tape. Absolutely. So figuring out we, – we had to hedge a little bit because you, you don't know what you're going to get. Yeah. If we just go by what we saw recently, Aguilar is much higher on the list. Um, so he'll be an intriguing one. Sammy Watkins, too, yes. is an intriguing That's one. because next. Sammy Watkins – think about the playoffs last year, right? He, you know, whoops Richard Sherman in the Super Bowl. Has a huge game in the – uh, AFC Championship game, right? Like Sammy Watkins had he had three touchdowns against Jacksonville, first game of 2019, was it last year? Just random games where Sammy Watkins just takes over for the Chiefs when Tyree Kill's not around or Travis Kelsey's not around or those guys just aren't, you know, or they're being double covered or whatever. Yeah, I think so he's consistent. I think he's like a better athlete um, version of Corey Davis in terms of hmm. he's not he's not the reason he's not responsible for his own production the same way that running backs are generally a product of their environment and everything else that's going on around them sammy watkins and number two receivers are generally a product of what's happening with the number one and the other guys right so when you decide that you're going to take away tyree kill or travis kelsey and the gravity from those guys pulls the coverage away from somewhere else sammy watkins can go the hell off right when he's one-on-one with somebody He's a great athlete. He's got skills, and he can make some big plays. Same thing is true with Corey Davis. When suddenly you start rotating everything over to A.J. Brown or you start to stuff the box with nine guys so that Derrick Henry doesn't run for 250, Corey Davis can win one-on-one against a number two cornerback. But if you put them out there in a different offense and suddenly there isn't that gravity affecting things and it's just you're on an island against a good player, they're not winning anymore. One of the debates I'm going to be struggling with this entire year is the idea that, yes, we, we track war, wins above replacement, and when you just look at position against position, receiver is one of the most valuable positions on the field. And I think, again, intuitively it makes sense because when these guys do things well, when receivers perform well, they convert first downs, right? There's Like when a defensive lineman does something well, it happens eight to ten times a year, and it's a sack and it's a huge play. But when receivers do something well – they convert first downs, which is like 40, 50, 60 times a year. That's significant. That makes a big impact on the team. But how much are you willing to pay a Nelson Aguilar, a Marvin Jones, a Sammy Watkins, complementary receivers versus getting a comparable one in the draft or getting uh, you know comparable, comparable receivers in other places? So the, the value of a number two slash number three receiver, I think, is going to be an interesting discussion. Do they make an impact on the field? Absolutely. 
but the opportunity cost of that guy versus a draft pick I think is a, is going to be a healthy debate all offseason um, quarterback wise Dak Prescott we've mentioned as the top he's the top free agent until he gets franchised right well until he gets signed right by the Cowboys yeah. right so Dak's the top guy do you see Dak even hitting the market will or will Dallas figure this thing out um I think they'll figure it out eventually but it it's not easy like I think there's a non negligible chance that he ends up getting out of there for no other reason than Dallas has just built this series of rods for their own back in terms of how they dealt with his contract already like the only thing that's even remotely depressing his contract value and his leverage is the injury right everything else since they started this negotiation has only strengthened his leverage from you know when I go down the entire thing falls to pieces to I've been playing better because you gave me some good weapons to work with like everything has worked in his favor except that injury so if Dallas was looking at this and saying we think that Dak Prescott is a good not great quarterback and we're only willing to go so far in terms of money money particularly when we've already handed Zeke Elliott a 90 million dollar contract we don't want to go further than that if they had that line in the sand it's gotten worse because that line in the sand is closer to or it's it's they've gone past it already like they're not clawing that back so one of two things needs to happen either they need to stay firm in which case he's gone or they have to you know rub out the line in the sand and move another one yeah I think I think the Cowboys have seen what they need to see that he needs to be their guy going forward I think it's easy enough to look at the whole body of work with Dak and say look he's got two top 10 finishes and two closer to 20 I've used that statement before I think the other viewpoint too is 2018 74 grade up to 80 in 2019 85 in 2020 before getting hurt was on pace for his best season and yeah he was thrown for 400 yards three three of his four games or whatever it was um and that's not why he was good but they were running that offense through him and scoring a lot of points I think good things were going to happen in Dallas if Dak had stayed healthy there so I do expect him back. I think Philip Rivers, he's the we put him at number 10 for free agent because of the value of quarterbacks. And Rivers, the number 17 graded quarterback prior to this weekend's game, played a great playoff game in a losing effort. And you hear his postgame speech too. Like he is passionate, man. He was, he was really upset that this team that he just had a year with, bonded with, thought they were going to make a run. Um, I could see teams, you know, Patriots fans were like, hey, is he going to be our guy next year? Broncos fans might be looking at it. Like, there are teams – that might want that have a good roster give him yeah. another one-year contract you need to be a team like the Colts from this past year right a team that genuinely thinks that this is a roster that should be in the postseason and given the current guy at quarterback won't be so that I mean a team like Indianapolis still fits that bill it sounds like they might be leaning towards moving on but you know maybe I don't know if the Patriots fit that but the Broncos really do like the Broncos if they're in this position of saying, hey, look, we just surrounded Drew Locke with this insane amount of talent and Drew Locke shit the bed. Like, okay, let's, this is the Brissett thing all over again, right? Let's, we've given this guy a really good environment and it's not happened. So let's throw in a Phillip Rivers and see if we can make the postseason right now. And by the way, you know, we don't necessarily need to give up on Drew Locke in doing so. We can sit in behind Phillip Rivers and let him learn and develop and be a mentor to, to, to young Drew. 
and see if he can get better over the next year. And then we can kick him to the curb and move on. That's the thing about the NFL right now. There was a point where you used to hate all the backup quarterbacks that always got jobs. But there was a point where, like, well, some of them were ridiculous. <laughs> like, Matt Castle would always have a job. and Chad Henney is still employed. Chad Henney would have a job. The backups in the NFL, and this includes some of the free agents here, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, and Andy Dalton. They're all free. Tyrod Taylor. They're all free agents. And I think if you said – and you took all the people in the world and you said, are these guys one of the best 32 quarterbacks in the world? I think they're at least – they're all in the conversation, right? They're all one of the best 32 quarterbacks in the world, at least the best top 40. They're all starting caliber players. And I think, you know, maybe Ryan Fitzpatrick gets one of these Phillip Rivers types of jobs. Like, man, you really balled out the last three years, Fitz. Take our team that has good talent and see if you can be that bridge quarterback for another team for another year. But I don't know if Jameis Winston's going to get a starting job. I don't know if Cam Newton's going to get a starting job after what we saw this year. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll go to Washington and reunite with Ron Rivera. I don't think Andy Dalton's getting a starting job or Tyrod Taylor. So um, I think we're in a situation where the backup talent around the NFL, though, is outstanding. And one of these teams is going to grab a backup and be in a really good situation as far as QB one and two. Yeah, I mean, rarely does a top-end quarterback hit the open market. Dak Prescott would be the only one if he does. And outside of that, if you need a quarterback and a starter and you're not in a position for a Trevor Lawrence or a Justin Fields or a Zach Wilson at the top of the draft, you are in this spot of saying, do we think a bridge like Rivers, Fitzpatrick, Winston, do we think one of those guys actually moves the needle in terms of what we currently have and our options? Um, And there's a lot of – like. Those guys would upgrade a lot of quarterback rooms, but they wouldn't necessarily make a giant leap forward in um, the starter that you have unless you're, you know, the Broncos. Just to round out the offensive discussion, if you're looking for an offensive lineman, we only have 13 offensive linemen in the top 100. I mean, it's, it's a decent number, but the high end, the guys that actually make the top 20, Trent Williams, stud offensive tackle, Taylor Moton, really, uh, Mouton, really good offensive tackle. They make the top 20, and then two guards, Brandon Scherf, and Joe Tooney so there's some depth there's creep back toward average type of tackles that we love Russell Okung Alejandro Villanueva Darrell Williams who's been outstanding for the Bills this year as that you know average to above average tackle Kelvin Beecham with an injury history but you know again plays he's a pretty good pass blocker so there's there's guys that can help your offensive line creep back toward average but as far as impact players only four offensive linemen make our top 20 right now so yeah, and don't forget Corey Lindsley, who was the, the best center in the NFL this season by a distance, uh, is also free agent. Yeah, and tight end doesn't look that great outside of Hunter Henry either. Again, you've got, you've got complementary is the key word here, and I think that's free agency this year. Complementary weapons like Gerald Everett at tight end. Gronk is technically a free agent, but he's going back to the box. So. Yeah, you're just going to ignore running back completely. Is that, that's how it works. Running backs don't matter, so we're not, gonna, we're not even going to mention them. Yeah, they actually did slip my mind huh. subconsciously, but they did. Huh. All right, talk about talk about free agent running backs. Aaron Jones is the the prize, I think. A, a genuinely elite running back, guy that's good at everything, good in the pass game, which is obviously important. Um, Chris Carson has been a better running back than his reputation for a number of years. Uh, Kenyon Drake has been a disappointment this year, given where I think people thought he would be coming into the year. But when you look at those things that – you know, quantify uh, expected yards for a running back given the situations they were put in, like he's buried. I mean, he he didn't – it was the exact opposite of what we thought, which was this was a great environment for Kenyon Drake to look good. And it turned out it was a terrible environment for him this year, and consequently he looked not great. Um, but he still got some talent. 
And then you get into like, you know, iffy. James Conner, Mike Davis. James, James Conner's run, run hard. Mike Davis, I think, is a good backup because he's going to force missed tackles when he gets out there. And James White will be a, he'll be a third down back for somebody, maybe end up reuniting with Brady in Tampa for, uh, for next year because they do need a pass game running back. Le'Veon Bell, also hmm. an impact running back. He's at number 86 on our rankings. Just for perspective, Aaron Jones, number 44 on our free agent list. He's the top running back on our list. Maybe we're even being too generous stop it for running backs we love running backs we love you guys all right that's it that's it for the pff nfl podcast today go check out the pff nfl daily of course check out the chris collinsworth podcast all of the great pff podcasts that we have just search pff anywhere you guys listen to your podcast and just download and subscribe to all of them listen to all of them so we'll be back thursday we will preview all of the divisional round games and we'll get into some more free agency discussion on the defensive side of the ball. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. See you Thursday.